you're listening to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in, and welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to the original Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. I'm Jonathan, and tonight we're going to be talking about the episode Vision of Hope. And joining with me, we have Mark. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Nathan. Hey, folks. And back from his vacation, your friend and mine, Barrent. Hey, everybody, I'm back from the Skype sabbatical. It's good to be (laughs) back, guys. And as I said, the episode we're going to be talking about is Vision of Hope, which kind of picks up some threads from earlier episodes and takes them in, I'm not sure if it's an unexpected direction, but why don't we hear what each of you, your initial impressions of this episode, and Barrett, as I know our listeners have been dying to hear what you think about what's been going on in Rebels, why don't you kick us off? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. I really appreciate that. Uh, I thought Vision of Hope was a pretty solid episode. I like the way it started with uh, the training of the young Padawan, uh, if we can call it that. I hope that the training gets a little bit more smoother as we go along. But I thought uh, Vision of Hope was a pretty good, solid episode. Uh, for me, I, I'm going to say it loosely, but it felt like a filler episode, but in a good way. I, I, Rebels is showing me that, like as I, I often reference Supernatural, the filler episodes are all adding to the overall story. They're all filling in little details that are being picked up later. As you said, threads are being picked up again. And while they ran with some earlier threads that were already laced down, I felt like it was really weaving a kind of a cool tapestry. So while it didn't really push the plot as as some episodes have so far, it was a fun ride, but I did feel like it was a very filler type story. But like I said, Rebels is doing a real good job of showing that filler can be fun. Yeah, you have to be careful when you say filler episode because they always come back to it. You know, we mm-hmm. what we call filler, it's, it's going to be relevant somehow. Absolutely. And maybe we should redefine and not call these filler episodes as much as expansion episodes. Ooh, I like that. Well, in this, to use Pablo Hidalgo's term, character-building episode, as opposed to filler, you know, I didn't see a whole lot that made me actually think filler at any point. I was actually kind of surprised to hear that word come up for this one. And I guess to a degree it is, in the sense that it doesn't really move a whole lot along for the individual members of the Ghost crew. But to me, it felt like this was a major moment in the sense that So we know that they've got those two forms of support out there. You've got the moral support that they hadn't met, which was Gaul Travis out there and his uh, holonet transmission things that he breaks into, very similar to what we find uh, rebel groups or kind of a rebel group doing in the Tarkin novel, which will play into our next episode. And then you've got Fulcrum, whoever that may be. And this one does bring them together because Fulcrum is the one that tells them about how there's 
you know, sometimes secret messages in what it is that Travis is saying so that the local groups could meet him and that sort of thing. And I felt like this brought those together in a way that pushed our story ahead because it took away one of those support pillars. It emphasized how alone they actually are. And our next episode is going to go into this idea of rebels needing unity. So I got a feeling that this episode and maybe the next two all kind of come together and give us this sense of this group is alone, but the hope is they can somehow connect with others later, which is that theme we've seen come up a few times throughout the season. So I particularly like this one. It wasn't the most amazing one we've seen so far, but it was certainly more solid than a lot of stuff we saw early in the Clone Wars. And uh, it's quite a bit better than what we got the previous week. It's kind of like, they're like, this is awesome. Now you've got fight or flight. Ha ha. This is awesome. Now you've got a puffer pig. Ha ha. Now we're back to the, this is awesome again. And it's just building up over these weeks. You know, Nathan, I'm going to have to go back to it. I, I, I will say that I liked fight or flight. I know it wasn't your favorite episode, but as far as my opinion to this episode, yeah, I think felt it laid a lot of groundwork or kind of picked things up. And obviously, I think we've all seen the episode that comes after this one. But this really kind of just paved the path for that next episode more than anything else for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I enjoyed it. I won't say it's my favorite episode. I, I really felt it was kind of middle of the road. But there were aspects of it that I thought really did kind of further some of these characters, and I enjoyed that part of it. As Baron said, the episode opens with Ezra continuing his Jedi studies, and this time he's learning to use his new saber to block blaster bolts, which is, again, something that they said in the previous episode, Idiot's Array, that he wasn't able to do yet in the battle with S. Morrigan at the end. So he's practicing this, but Kanan not only wants Ezra to be able to block the bolts, he wants him to be able to redirect them, and in this case, to hit a Stormtrooper helmet. And Ezra's having difficulty with this, and while Zeb, Chopper, and Sabine are firing at him, and I I must say that Chopper and Zeb seem to be enjoying shooting at Ezra a little too much, (laughs) he's, he's not able to do this. But then, in the midst of it all, he has a vision, uh, which kind of leads him to believe that that Gal Travis was going to be very important to them in the short order. So, I mean, what do you think about this as sort of like the foreshadowing of what this episode is going to be about? I don't think it's necessarily something that we've seen a lot of, that this direct foreshadowing to the point where in his vision you saw scenes from later in the episode. It's something that I've seen in other media, but I don't think I've ever seen it with Star Wars, and I kind of liked it. It was a different take on things. Brilliant, man. I thought it was a brilliant move on their part. I like the way that that it emphasized the fact that Ezra has certain abilities that seem to be unique only to, say, Anakin and Luke from a canon perspective. You know, not too many Jedi were having visions. While it's alluded that they've had visions in the past and not to trust them too carefully, I like the fact that they were playing on that theme. Well, it's interesting, you know, because we've actually seen tweaks happen to the films in order to make visions clearer to the audience. I mean... There was the vision that Anakin had in Revenge of the Sith of Padme dying in childbirth, where we actually see basically the way the scene is set up later. But originally, there wasn't, if I remember correctly, the voice of Shmi being heard 
when he has the dream in Attack of the Clones, where he freaks out and says, we got to go back to Tatooine and help her. But when they put out a subsequent cut of Attack of the Clones on home video, they added that in. So the visions thing, sometimes it seems like in the films they wanted to play with the literal exact. Other times they wanted to sort of go vague and just go for the feeling of it. It doesn't seem like there's any pattern that has to be followed with it. It's just kind of whatever suits the story. I particularly like the way they did it here because it reminds me of a great line that I always use from the old Sequest DSV back in the day. Lucas Wallencheck, actually I think in an episode with Mark Hamill in it, if I remember correctly, says the line that the easiest way to lie is to tell the truth except the part that really matters. And that's basically what this vision does. I mean, everything we see is stuff that we see in a different context later on, but it's the same scenes. Even the line about, you know, your parents were blah, 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 uh, but foolish, right? We get the part that's the positive thing that leads him to think that Travis is helping. Later on, we see that exact same thing, same facial expression and everything, but the next line undermines the entire thing. It's a great way of emphasizing Yoda's point about how uh, visions of the future and prophecies and stuff could easily be misread, as basically Kanan says in his own way. Mm-hmm. Well, what I found was interesting about his vision, you know, looking back at it from in context of the whole episode, so the second and third time I watched it, is Ezra's own bend on things, his own perspective, his own belief system very much colored how he interpreted the vision, which I think all of us we know that our own perceptions really color our reality. So I found that very insightful, uh, especially almost psychologically deep for a show that most recently had a puffer pig in it. (laughs) (laughs) Again, with the puffer pig. You know, I have to agree with with Mark about the vision, about that not a lot of Jedi have this thing, and it's kind of special to be able to tell the future. But the one thing that's different about, you know, well, one thing I like about what they're doing with Ezra is he has all these Jedi powers, but he's kind of tweaked just a little bit. You know, he has a lightsaber, but it's kind of tweaked a little bit. He has this Jedi power to have these visions and see the future. But what's different with his Jedi power, it seems, is that, that these kind of visions are kind of being forced upon him as opposed to, say, when Yoda does it, he's meditating or when Anakin does it. You know, he's sleeping or something like that. I mean, he was in the midst of being wide awake training and all of a sudden he gets this vision. So that's kind of different. So I I like that about it. And he seems to be getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Well, Jonathan, you mentioned colored perceptions. And one of the things that I was pondering from that opening scene was the color of the blaster bolts. I mean, you know, we were mentioning last episode about how his lightsaber had a blue stun effect but it wasn't like the classic ring circle that we see uh, Leia get struck down with in A New Hope. But, I don't know, it seemed like they were shooting stun bolts at him, but it, they were yellow. I mean, I know we've seen yellow blasts, we've seen blue, we've seen red, we've seen green, and I have not a clue what the colors actually represent in blasters. I mean, I thought blue stood for stun, but then I'm watching certain space battles and stuff, and there's a blue blast going off. I'm like, what is going on? Well, in this case, according to the episode guide over at StarWars.com and all, They weren't so much using stun blasts, although that's what he's calling it. It's more like they're low power blasts. Think of it kind of like the way that the Legends continuity has the training lightsabers or like low power. And if you get hit, it's not going to cut your arm off, but it's still going to sting. That sort of thing. They likened it to, and I'd have to go back and actually watch the most recent cut of the film to check and see if the color correction actually makes it happen. But they likened it to the colors on the training remotes blasts 
in A New Hope, which I remember being oh. kind of like a core of orange with some red around it. So they're, they are drawing off an existing source, but you're right. We tend to see stun not just as blue. When we see stuns, we usually see them as those rings that zip out. If anything, Ezra looks more like an ion blast when he shoots it. Or like it's not as focused. I mean, that was the one thing I was thinking is maybe it is the exact same as that ring, but because it's compact, it's in that lightsaber hilt, it's missing a focal lens or something. So it's it's more uh, wild. I, I just want to say, though, I, I've complained about the whole Rebels logo with the bah, 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 and all that. But I've come to notice that that kind of like the fortune cookie of the Clone Wars, the way they go into that differs from episode to episode. And I really got a kick out of the way this one did it because, you know, they he wakes up with, did I get shot? And Kanan's like, no, you actually reflected every shot back at the target. And the helmet is still spinning. And you kind of get the sense that he was out for like a minute or two. So I thought that was kind of cool. But they didn't do a dun, 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 dun thing this time. This episode and the next one, neither one uses the traditional blaring, annoying music. They all do that whole transition the music uh, out of the scene type of thing that I really appreciated because that's mm-hmm. one of those jarring things I've been complaining about. Yeah, well, it felt more like how The Simpsons do it. You know, it's like it's instead of getting that blaring tone, which I can't stand, they did it in a different way on this one and even the next episode. And I, I'm really enjoying and appreciating it now that they're getting away from the da, 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 da. I mean, every now and again, I can accept it, but I like the fact that they're rotating it. Well, you know, they, they must have heard your guys complain, change it up for you. <laughs> I'm thinking it was just somebody's ringtone, you know, in the Lucasfilm animation office or something. And they got so sick of hearing it. They're like, okay, we're done with that for the beginning of the episode. So the action transitions to the interior of the ghost where Hera and Ezra are excited to see the latest, I guess, pirated holonet transmission from Senator Travis. It's almost like they're fans of a boy band or something, the way they're getting all giddy about it. But they find that Senator Travis has a message specifically for them. And embedded in that message, they figure out where he wants to meet them on Lothal. And I don't know about you guys, but at this point, I really, something rang wrong to me. It just didn't feel Mm -hmm. right. And if, you know, you go back to some of our earlier shows, when the character of Senator Travis was first introduced, I said, you know, I wondered if the character was actually there as a plant of the Empire to draw out this group. And that's what, you know, maybe I had, you know, a forced premonition or something, because (laughs) this, you know, right when we got that message, I'm like, no, something's not right. Something's not right. I, I'm 100% with you in this. I mean, I'm totally in your camp. I'm your second in command. I, it, to me, I think the thing that really threw it off was the fact that Hera's like, oh, only a local would know this. But I'm like, well, what about, a? you know, not everyone's going to be a rebel sympathizer. There are going to be people that legitimately want the Empire to succeed, and they're going to be living locally on Lethal. I mean, I, I kind of almost get the feeling like as this first season is is coming closer to an end, that we may see them move in season two away from Lothal because Lothal is seeming like too hot of a planet. They need to get the heck out of there. Well, it does mean that the Empire can't figure it out. I mean, they don't have a, a little orphan Annie Dakota ring like everybody else on Lothal. It's like the Inquisitor can figure out who the Jedi studied with when it came to, to lightsaber combat, but he can't figure out uh, this coded message. So, yeah, I knew something was wrong, but... You know, one thing about the scene 
besides the message that seems to be a trap for them, was that how comfortable is it now to watch scenes on the, their ship? Like when they go into to watch the scene of the holonet, you know, they go into the room. That's the room. They look into the holonet. It felt real comfortable. I'm really getting to like these characters and getting to know and feel comfortable with with these guys. I guess I'm sort of the dupe out of the group. I did wind up feeling like there was a tip off at, oh, this is not going to go well. He's working for the Empire. But for me, it came later. At this point, it felt a lot like the last time we saw it, right? Because remember, the whole Rise of the Old Masters, whenever he showed up and mentioned Luminara unduly being alive and all that kind of stuff, it turned out to be a trap. But presumably, theoretically, they could very easily have said, okay, well, this is something where he didn't mean for it to be a trap. The Empire put out that false information. He heard the false information, passed it on as if it was legit, and that led us into a trap. No harm, no foul for Travis. So... I never got the sense that this had to be a trap from just the original transmission. It just kind of felt like, oh, it's another transmission. Yeah, it's a little bit simplistic of a a code. You know, grab a map of Capital <laughs> City, and yeah, you can pretty much figure out where that was going to be. And But, I mean, at least it was a little bit clearer, right, than the hint last episode about, hey, just use the escape pods. They're nice. But I got to say, the tip-off for me was as they're trying to run away and he's supposedly out of breath, and the thing about how, well, I've never really been chased before, etc., etc. As soon as he starts to to give the whiny responses, once they're down in the, I guess it's supposed to be a sewer, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot yeah. of crap in it, literally. That, to me, was where I felt that there was a, a shift in tone, like, oh, yeah, this guy's working for the Empire, it's coming. I never got that, really, from the transmission, though. Again, maybe I'm the, the dupe. Well, you know, Baron, you nailed something, though, about the, the comfort of the characters. I mean, one of the things I'm enjoying is is the subtle banter back and forth. You know, I, I've always enjoyed it from the start. But there's a moment right after all the stuff with Ezra where Zeb slaps Ezra and he goes, he, he was talking about helping him hone his Jedi powers. Like, well, didn't you see that coming? I, I don't know. There, there's there's moments like that moving in and stuff that I like seeing the comfort level. Like, you know, it, it seemed more childish and jovial at the beginning of the season, but now it feels more comfortable and more like this is the accepted nature of the group. And I think maybe part of that feeling of comfort is actually coming from the actors possibly getting more into their roles and the writers getting more comfortable with the characters. But you're right. They seem to have hit a stride very, very early where the relationships between these characters feel very genuine and believable. Mm -hmm. Well, could that also be too, because we just came off the heels of the Clone Wars and have been used to five seasons of Star Wars animation? Well, it seems like the team themselves behind the scenes are getting more comfortable with, I guess, really the humor of all of it. You didn't see a lot of self-referential humor in the Clone Wars. There was humor, you know, what? He was going to blow up the ship after Anakin stabs the Mandalorian Senator guy through, but not a lot of sort of poking fun at themselves. It was almost like it was as deadly serious as a lot of times the prequels felt. Whereas in this case, you know, later in the episode after, you know, Sabine gets her moment of making the comment about being able to smell or recognize the smell of Ezra, she makes the comment later as they're trying to escape, you know, remember, I can smell you. Ezra is about to say something smart, and you know he is. You figure, oh, that's the kind of banter we're expecting. What's he going to say that's funny? But mm -hmm. it's like the creative team knew behind the scenes that's what we'd be thinking, because that's what they're thinking as they're writing. And you get Harris lined about, think of some kind of witty comment later, and they take off. 
I'm not sure you would have seen that type of humor with the Clone Wars, but it's exactly the kind of thing that we got at times in the classic trilogy, like, you know, a humorous line coming from Leia and then Han just going, nice, as he walks away. Uh, they're getting that feel even for the self-referential stuff, which is, honestly, it seems a very, you know, unusual for Star Wars. Well, you mentioned the fact that, that they found out the Emperor was onto him. You know, the Empire was coming down on him and all that. And I thought it was really cool that they brought Zier back to be the one to tell Ezra about the information. And the one thing that I really was kind of dialing in on was the fact that, once again, Ezra went to tell Zier his name and wasn't able to get it out. And I'm kind of almost wondering, are they going to do something with that later? Because, you know, in Jason Fry's book, we find out that Zara, he's there because of what happened to his sister. And I'm almost wondering if somehow, some way, Ezra might have a hand in her fate. And down the road, his name is going to be an issue and Zara is going to have to do some questioning. Because right now, he's definitely set up in the role as Ezra's inside informant. You know, Mark, I think you hit something really good there. I don't doubt that the fact that Ezra has not been able to share his true name with Zare is going to come back because, I mean, as we've learned, they don't, everything seems really, really tight in the way mm-hmm. that they write things. Nothing is a throwaway. Everything kind of comes back in, even things that we wouldn't necessarily think would or could, but it does. And, you know, I, I think that this is part of what makes this such an engaging series for for us. Regarding Zare, uh, the book that Mark references, Edge of the Galaxy, it's Servants of the Empire is the series, Edge of the Galaxy is this particular one. It takes place over basically the better part of a year, uh, about more than a year, going back from season to season. It starts in the summer, works its way through an entire year, goes back to summer. It ends right before the fall where Zare would wind up going to the Academy, which is relatively new, leading into what we saw back in Breaking Ranks. And then that's going to show up in at least the next book. This one may be tied up into it, but then there's a, it's an ongoing series, so a third one may wind up touching on this episode, but it seems like they're going to do some crossover with it. And it's interesting, Zare is someone that at first I thought, hey, this is a pretty cool character. I know he's going to have his, you know, his book written about him, so maybe he'll be important. I'm excited to see where this character goes. Fast forward to this episode, now that I've read that book, I was absolutely thrilled to see Zare back. Because now, we know a lot more about him. We've gotten inside his head. We know what kind of crap he's gone through at uh, the Apsi Academy there, where he's basically putting up with a a coach who is speciesist and screwed over his team. How he screwed over a commandant, almost didn't get into the Imperial Academy at all. And his sister has moved from, uh, or had been moved to officer's training before she disappeared. And here he's saying, I'm going for officer's training on Arcanus, which makes me think that this is something he's sort of arranged to make sure he can follow the trail of where his sister went. Uh, And the jury is still out, even in that book. They don't go through and give us a reason why the sister disappeared. They say she ran off. Zare thinks the Empire had something to do with it. We talked the first time around in Breaking Ranks about how we don't know if she left because she's against the Empire or if it's going to turn out that she's still a villain. When we meet her, she's still loyal to the Empire, but for whatever reason, disappeared for other purposes. It's cool to see that pop back in, and I think for any... This is just like a new dawn. If you've read Edge of the Galaxy, you're going to get more out of this series. It's the nature of this new canon. If everything counts, novels, comics, and show equally, good to keep up with these characters on the page, not just on the screen. 
Well, and Zare's interesting because he is like the first solid EU-like character. I mean, he came first from the book and then into the show. I mean, granted, he was planned from the start, but he's the first character that's solid. Like, he's actually, then he showed up in the other series and had a speaking role, and they're actually utilizing him. Like, that is the coolest thing about this new direction with the new canon. Okay, well, back to the episode. Ezra, after they decide, after the group decides that they are going to meet Senator Travis, Ezra goes to meet Zare to find out if this is in fact a trap. And Zare gives him information that leads the group to believe that the Empire at least is aware of this meeting. But instead of avoiding it, the group decides to go through with it anyway because they, they believe that they need to protect or rescue Senator Travis. One thing I noticed about this, uh, as Zare has told him about what's happening and he's r- going to run off and try to bring the news, I'm really impressed with how much the series, at least in this episode, is not walking us through things. It's letting us take certain things for granted that we would always take for granted in a TV show, and yet that Clone Wars probably would have had to spell out for us as if we're all three years old, right? Ezra rushes his way past Zare, knocking him down. We don't have to have a moment where Z- where Ezra's running away and says something like, I hope that covers your butt, pal, or something like that. Ezra gets cornered in that alleyway at the dead end. We look away. We look back. He's gone. We look away again. We look back. He's up on top of the roof. We don't need to see him jump or anything like that. We can take it for granted. And again, that's something Clone Wars never seemed to do. I don't know if it's because this one's skewing towards an older audience than Clone Wars, or if it's just that they've sort of grown to trust us as an audience as we've grown to trust them as a creative team. Because this is Rebels, we do get a bit of the slapstick humor as Chopper meets up with an R4 unit and, well, kind of beats him up and then kills him. Or stuns him. No, he pushes him into the hole. I guess that would be kind of murder. You know, Chopper the homicidal astromech. Welcome to 2015, where murder can be classified as slapstick. But it is a droid, right? You can do just about anything to a droid and not call it brutality. Well, and do anything to a droid is right. I mean, even Jedi mind tricks on droids. That was a little weird. Okay, I'm missing it. Jedi mind tricks Yeah, on I droids? missed that one. Jedi mind trick you on got, a droid. Are you kidding me? You guys missed that? Yeah, Kanan did a whole little, uh, waved his hand, and they're like, my sensors detected something, and they turned and walked off to go after it. I'm like, really? Like... <laughs> Jedi oh, that's not a Jedi mind trick. That's the same thing that Obi-Wan did on the Death Star. He made a noise. Yeah. Oh, I missed that part. I, I was just like, oh, okay, so they could be... Oh, uh, See, I always thought when Obi-Wan did that, it was in their head. I didn't realize it was an actual noise noise. No, I mean, he just, like, banged something together. He, you know, he, it's kind of like throwing your voice, but with a noise. No, he... It, and and they said, what was that? It wasn't like a mind trick. He made something make a noise. Well, see, Nathan, they got to spell it out because sometimes I'm just an idiot. <laughs> There's this, you know, he missed the escape pod reference last time. Mark, yeah. you got to do your homework better, man. I, I'm, I'm too too into that. Oh, look at that helmet design. I mean, I was totally into the helmet design that Ezra and Zara wear. And I'm like, how cool is that going to be for cosplayers? So after Chopper takes out the R4 unit, uh, the group goes down into, I think, as Nathan said, some of the nicest sewers I've ever seen. Yet, through the sewers, they manage to get up into the tower. Anybody else wonder about that one? <laughs> yeah, super easy. I mean, I was struck by the fact that Sabine, especially, and Zeb are definitely the warriors of the group, whereas Keenan's more of a smuggler. 
Sabine's just lethal when it comes to the to her blasters. And I'm thinking, you know, for being only 16, she's a pretty cold-blooded killer. I mean, I don't know. She makes short work of everything getting to the places. So we finally meet Senator Travis in the flesh. And the minute I see him, you know, you hear Brent Spiner speaking the part. And to, to quote one of uh, our listeners who I was talking to earlier today, it was very much lore versus data. Just kind of swarmy. And I didn't trust him. I mean, I had my doubts earlier, but the minute you meet him, you know that this is not going to end well. Well, what was he doing? He was just kind of standing there behind a podium waiting for the homeless, the locals to show up. I mean, it was just kind of weird altogether. Well, it was an interesting ploy. I mean, I mean bringing in the rebel groups and kind of i mean i got the impression that he was letting most of them go and they were only taking out the really uh, dangerous ones basically they're monitoring everybody and i thought that was like a brilliant tactic something that clearly you know something that old legends version of star wars me was like oh that's classic empire right there heck yeah it makes me wonder if he was just expecting something more because you got the lines in there later about how he's asking about you know well is there more of your group or do you get your supplies and Seems kind of shocked that when they show up, there's only a handful of them. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if he, as he's standing there at the podium, if he's supposed to be expecting some kind of large gathering, like a public rally of some kind, that he can somehow keep a secret, supposedly, obviously, with him planning to betray them and all, inside that building. And when they show up and it's just them, it's kind of like, oh, I guess I don't need the podium anymore. I look kind of stupid. As you were. What? That's a good point. Because Ezra actually does flat out say that, and that was something that jumped to my mind. He's like, we're all there is. And that actually makes a lot more sense in that context. You know, it occurred to me now, and I'm not sure if I thought about it while watching the episode, there's something else that we see here that we've never seen before. Hera comes with them. Typically, Hera's the one who waits in the ship to pull them out, but no, the whole group goes this time. Unless they're giving her over to slavery. <laughs> you, you almost so you get the feeling that this is very important to her rebellion uh you know from a new dawn it it was clear that she's the driving force of the rebellious action and making sure it's done smart and so i kind of got that feeling like with fulcrum you know this is something she has to do herself this one is not something that she can it's not even that she doesn't trust the others but it's more that if they all get caught she's the one that has the most information and she needs to keep it that way so she needs to be the one actually doing the major interaction with him or at least that was the impression i got and it's funny because one of the things that became kind of a running joke with the clone wars was how you could constantly have anakin battling dooku prior to the events of revenge of the sith you know so you know my powers have doubled since the last time we met count could have meant last week but one of the things that they actually managed to try to do and were pretty successful with that was one of their rules from the beginning is Anakin can't fight Grievous. Anakin can't meet Grievous because he makes the comment about Grievous being taller or not being as tall as he expected or whatever. So it's kind of weird that with that kind of thing being the issue with the Clone Wars as a running gag, here they seem to be being really meticulous as to keeping track of who has met whom and when. Because not only do we have the instance where she goes with them for the first time, so when Callus shows up, he mentions that he hasn't met her before, and he's assuming she's the pilot. He comes in and introduces himself as he comes in to Kanan Jarrus, whose name he knew. And what does he call Ezra? Jabba. The same thing Ezra kind of sarcastically called himself back in Spark of Rebellion when Callus mm-hmm. asked his name. So 
they're doing a really good job, it seems like, of that internal episodic continuity here. Maybe because they're telling these stories in an order that's not arcs, it's actually more like a serialized story as the entire series goes. Um, but it seems like they're paying much better attention to that, and that's something that, in particular, I appreciate. Yeah, I missed that one. I mean, they're doing a really good job of blurring the lines. I mean, with the Clone Wars, people were always like, well, it's a kid's show. No, it's an adult show. It's a kid's show. No, they just killed all those little babies in clone cylinders. No, it's an adult show. No, it's a kid's show. Oh, look, she just got that guy beheaded. This one, too, is doing the same way in different directions. I mean, there are moments where it's like, okay, is Zeb and Ezra the comic relief, or is it Kanan and Chopper? You know, the, the, the girls are the serious ones more often than not. I mean, I'm really digging what they're doing. I love that. I loved when he said Padawan Jabba. I, I was rolling on the floor. That was brilliant. So the group is ambushed by Agent Callus and his group of stormtroopers. And again, the other thing that I feel is the Empire in this series does often feel like a credible threat. You know, you you get the sense that they're they're serious and that they could take you out and do damage to this to this group. And again, comparing it to Clone Wars as Nathan's been doing, you never really felt that way about the droids. You always felt like, you know, you could outsmart them or, you know, get away. But this group felt like they were actually in danger until Zeb and Sabine managed to rescue him with the smoke bombs. But even the chase, it there was a aspect of suspense there. To me, I, I don't know. I mean, I agree and disagree with what you're saying. Because, like, I don't know necessarily that the Empire felt that way because I, I i keep going you know why isn't vader showing up why isn't the inquisitor doing more but callus 100 you're dead on i mean callus is the one that that is definitely coming at him and it, it is interesting at this point that he hasn't brought the inquisitor in i mean because it does seem like you know the empire you would think would be coming at a jedi with everything but yeah he seems to be like oh maybe i can do this all my own he makes a comment earlier in the episode that i really like when he's talking to minister tua he says that the Inquisitor is too focused on the Jedi, and he needs to focus on the group. So you're getting kind of like this, not quite infighting, but these two very disparate perspectives on how this group of rebels sh should be dealt with. And again, I like that. That that feels genuine to me. The threat to me in a lot of ways, I think it's not necessarily a fair comparison with the Clone Wars, because with Clone Wars... Aside from Ahsoka, for the most part, we were dealing with film characters, right? Anakin, Obi-Wan, Mace, Yoda, Grievous, Dooku, Sidious. There was never really a sense of menace to the enemies, but a lot of it, well, one came down to the fact that a lot of them were one-and-done enemies. You'd never see them again. But also the fact that we knew all those characters had to survive. Here, this episode, I mean, we're dealing with essentially all characters whose fates are completely up in the air. And not even just because it's a new canon, but because they were created for this show. They're peppering in film characters, but none of them are the main characters. So I, I think that's always going to ratchet up the tension to a degree. And One thing I was somewhat, from a character standpoint, surprised to see, though, I guess, I guess it shows discipline. But I was surprised that when the smoke bombs go off, and Zeb jumps down to try to help save the others and get them out of there while Sabine is up there providing cover. That at no point in that battle does Zeb break away or do anything to try to take an extra shot at or even make a comment to Callus after what happened the last time those two went face to face uh, with those bow rifles. 
I'm not sure if that was discipline on his part or a missed opportunity. Well, he did roar when he jumped down. I mean, that was a vicious roar. So the group manages to escape and they're back down in the sewers and they're pursued by the Empire. And this is again where we're really kind of hit over the head with the fact that Senator Travis is not what he seems to be. And it gets to the point where they kind of pull a diehard with Hera giving him an unloaded weapon to see what he'll do with it, just like uh, Bruce Willis's character gave to Hans in the original Die Hard to kind of test him. Did you guys like this reveal? For me, it went kind of quickly. Uh, it's nice to see Hera. It seems like she's starting to catch on initially whenever he's first saying, you know, well, what about your other groups? And he's, you know, I haven't been chased this much before. That to me was that sort of dead giveaway moment for them. As soon as she hands in the blaster, it's pretty obvious that you're getting your diehard John McClane kind of moment there, that of course that blaster is not going to be powered or it'll be unsafe or whatever. It's kind of a setup. Although interesting that all he had to do was apparently push a button and it would have been powered up again. He could have very easily done that if he wasn't, you know, an idiot. But it seemed like it went very quick. What got me, though, as quick as it was, I think it escalates it or elevates it beyond sort of that pat, oh, we saw this coming, what a... Uh, a traditional kind of way of doing the villain reveal on TV is the parent angle where basically Ezra is able to bring in the fact that his parents were lost because of all of this. They were a voice for freedom, very much like Travis is very much like we'll see them try to do in the next episode. And here's Travis who recognizes the bridges that he says that the bridgers were the last group and the first group, it seems like, uh, who actually stood up as a voice of freedom on Lothal and you know, acknowledges their courage, but the fact that they were fools and you know they were taken out, how they should have joined the Empire like he did. That little exchange about the parents continues to add to this arc that we've got for Ezra dealing with the loss of his parents and the possible truth about it and all of that. So it was very rote. But at the same time, that gave it that edge that I think keeps it from being another scene that we can just sort of, you know, shrug off because it did have some meaning. When that scene went on, it reminded me of something that, again, it's kind of that loose end. And I'm surprised that they haven't dealt with it before. If you remember back with the two-parter, Empire Day and Gathering Forces, Hera knows what happened to Ezra's parents. and. At this point, Senator Travis goes, your parents are gone. And Hera goes, they're not gone. And then kind of catches herself and says something to the effect of they live on speaking for freedom and whatever. She hasn't told Ezra what happened to his parents yet, has she? Not that we're aware of. I mean, that's something that I'm still curious about. No, Fulcrum is your father. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I hope not. You have to wonder, though, if it's just one more level of how this is all personal for Hera. I I think more and more, as everything with my knowledge of the new canon goes on, I'm more curious about what's driving her. Um, You know, I I finished A New Dawn, and the questions I had about her driving forces and stuff, what was pushing her, haven't been answered. And her connections to what's going on with the other cells of the Rebellion, because I do feel like even though Ezra thinks they're completely alone, Hera is the one that is keeping them as part of the rest of the chain. Uh, whether you know that chain is is a, a you know a chain link mail of armor that'll eventually become the rebellion, or if 
like what we saw in Legend of Starkiller, this group is going to be the, the the brand that launches it all. I'm not sure, but I'm definitely curious about it. And the fact that she gave the gun to the senator and all that, I mean, I think it illustrated the fact that it was very personal. And, and again, she's taking charge and, and taking care of the situation. And I guess side reference here to Andrew Gilbertson out there who wrote this recently as uh, I think it was on his Facebook page. We got into a discussion about it. Uh, Harris seems to still be one of the strongest yet least explored characters of this new canon. She's kind of a breath of fresh air in a lot of ways in how she's designed and how the character carries herself and whatnot compared to what we've seen for many, many years of Star Wars films, cartoons, and Legends continuity. And yet she still remains the mystery. And I wonder how long she'll be able to remain that mystery. I mean, are we going to get a background for her in season one? Probably not with so few episodes left. Are we talking maybe a season two thing that delves into it? It's an interesting thing that they've touched on these other characters to some degree in the background, but she doesn't even have as many hints about her past as Sabine does or as Zeb does. And I do hope that they explore her backstory soon because, again, I want to know more about all of these characters. And I I want to see or at least be told how they got together before Ezra, you know, joined them. I mean, we know how... Kanan and Hera came together, but you get the impression that not even Chopper was with her at that point. You know, how did they pick up Sabine? How did they pick up Zeb? I think this is unmined territory, and I'm really looking forward to it. And before somebody says, wait a second, we got background for Hera in A New Dawn, not really. She played everything very close to the chest in A New Dawn. We got background for Kanan, but not really for Hera in that. Now, the one thing that I guess this episode had it going against it was you don't get a very satisfying ending, or at least I didn't feel it was overly satisfying. It just kind of stops. It doesn't end. At the very end, you have Hera and Ezra talking about how they can't believe that this individual who they had put so much faith into and had believed in turned out to be a fraud and turned out to be working for the Empire. But they bring up the the concept that you still have to have faith in what they're doing and why they're doing it, which does a very good job of leading into our next episode. But, I mean, how did you guys feel that this one ended? I got to agree. I mean, it it just kind of, I don't know, it, it petered almost. I mean, I think that's why I had that feeling like it was a filler one. But I think, Jonathan, you said it, character building, uh, or even Nathan. But that that's dead on. I think when I think filler, I think, you know, as in fill in the details, not as in fill in uh, time between good episodes, I guess. And and so, I don't know, with the way it ended, that, that kind of reinforced that feeling for me that we just added a little bit of more depth to what's going on with each of these characters and stuff. And it was slowly moved towards a bigger event. It's kind of like the arc of this episode ended... But there wasn't much of sort of a button to put on the thing at the end. Just a comment about, you know, we have hope. You get the sense that they're all alone. You've got the line about hope that, of course, vision of hope, a new hope. You've got that connection there. But beyond that, it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of an uplifting aspect to the end. Like that was needed for just a little bit of uplift at the end. So it wasn't a completely negative situation for them. But that's something I think we're seeing with this series. They're more willing to give us those emotional lows at the end of episodes because we know that eventually that's where dynamic storytelling comes in or what was the line from clerks right it ended on such a down note that's what life is a series of down endings but again it feels authentic because 
let's think about it. This group is really, I mean, except for their connection to Fulcrum and maybe some of Hera's other contacts, they are alone. And they are going up against this giant war machine that has endless resources. I mean, it's not always going to end well. It's not always going to be a happy little ending. I mean, they're in a tough situation. And I think sometimes this represents that. Just flee. Get the ghost. Run. I thought that the end of the episode was, it was kind of a downer. And they kind of had to, to say it was about hope. I mean, I think along with myself, other fans, we kind of hoped that the senator was going to be on their side, you know, someone who's going to be able to help them uh, down the line in some way. But, you know, if it's too, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. But it kind of made sense because what episode was it where they got some information about something else and it, you know, wasn't the Senator the one to give him the information about uh, Master Luminara as well. And yeah, yeah, it gave him that information. And wasn't he, the Senator was the one to give him information about, I want to say the Wookiees, Wookiees, exactly. So he's, they've been giving us clues for a a long time. The the Wookiee thing had nothing to do with Gaul Travis. Who was it that gave that detail? That was Visago, according to but Rise of Rebellion or whatever that, whatever that book is that I was referencing last time that novelizes and adds the chapters. Because one of the first chapters of that, books, that book is them finding the Wookiee's empty ship and trying to figure out where the heck have they gone that then tells them later when they realize what's going on. That's why they're able to jump to the conclusions, oh, it's Wookiees later. But it was Visago of all people. I kind of remember that the senator had something to do with that, too. Like, Zago Gate got the information from him, but I, I may be wrong. I'll have to go back and check that out. But there were clues. My point is there were clues that the senator's information was not accurate. And, in fact, every time they went by it, uh, they got into some trouble. It was almost trapped. So it, it was kind of cool to bring this to a conclusion. Um, so, you know, like I said before in the beginning, it's a solid episode. I will say, though, something that, that Barrett said popped into my mind. It did kind of feel like when we saw some preview stuff about this, knowing that he was going to be in the episode, it did kind of seem just kind of by the storytelling tropes of television, they can't have this ally for very long. Was I the only one going into this either expecting that he would wind up turning to out to be an Imperial, which I thought was less likely, or that he would just wind up dead by the end of this episode or the next? No, I really... I mean, again, I've had my doubts about this character. It sounds like much like Barrett since he was introduced way back when that there there was something off about him. And, you know, back to Rise of the Old Masters when he get when they get the information about Luminara and they essentially walk right into the Inquisitor's trap. It was I mean, sure, it could have been him reporting on information that he got from the Imperials that was planted as misinformation, but I mean, he just, he seemed like, you know, a propaganda tool from way back when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to agree 100%. I, I had the same hair on the back of my neck standing up about that guy. I was waiting for a betrayal of some sort. I mean, even when, when Ezra had the vision that showed him talking about his parents, there was a sinisterness to the guy's eyebrows and mustache that was just kind of like, what in the heck is up with him? And then by the end of the episode, we found out. So, I mean, I, I kind of had it come in, in the back of my mind. I like how the Jedi visions don't show that the guy was a traitor. Like, you know, <laughs> why does it shut off right before then? That's kind of important, Jedi vision. 
because then we would have no episode. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, Gall Travis, he goes on t- television, he gives news broadcasts, and he lies about the war. He should be played by Brian Williams. Makes you kind of wonder if Fulcrum, you know, makes you out of doubt Fulcrum because they were believing wholeheartedly in the senator. And Fulcrum believed in the senator because Fulcrum gives him the information that he hides information in his in his broadcast. That's how they knew about that because Hera got that information from Fulcrum. So right. not only did he fool this group, he's fooled other people higher up on the food chain. Well, that could be a reason for Hera and co. to uh, go out there and find Fulcrum to warn them. But now they know Travis's uh, they know the deal. So now they can spread the word. So he's no good to the Empire anymore. Well, we'll just have to see because I don't think we've seen the last of Senator Travis. But in any case, guys, thank you very much for talking about this episode with me. Uh, as always, a good conversation. And we will see everyone next time when we talk about a very exciting episode, Call to Action. Until then, may the Force be with you. Next time you're going to hide a secret message in a broadcast, make sure you use Pig Latin. It'd be tougher to figure out. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit republicforces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved.